The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. We're looking tonight at what I call the painful purpose of the wilderness in Exodus 15, uh, verse 22 through 27. The beginning of the Institutes, John Calvin wrote this, Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists in two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. And I think that's why God brought Israel into the wilderness, that they would know God better, that they would know his might and his power and his wisdom and his ways and his patience, his grace and his mercy and his provision, and that they would get to know themselves better too. You know, we can all uh, show our best side when we're celebrating on the edge of the Red Sea. That's really pretty easy to do, to rejoice and to triumph in the good times and to be joyful. But how about in the desert? How about after three days of looking for water and there is none? How about when you finally find some water and it's bitter and you can't drink it? Then what? What starts to bubble to the surface of your personality? God wanted to get at that, and I think that's his purpose in this section we're looking at today. Exodus 15:22 and following, it says, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made a decree and a law for them, and there he tested them. He said, If you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs and seventy palms, palm trees, and they encamped there near the water. So we have here in verse 22 the beginning of trials in the wilderness. They're wandering in the desert for three days, and they can find no water. Now, this is a major problem. We can't exist very long without water, maybe seven or eight days. And I think all of that is exacerbated by the heat and the dryness of the desert. And the fact that you're dealing with probably well over two million people shows what a grave situation this was. Now, the context here is rather striking. The first half of Exodus 15 is a great celebration. The Song of Moses, which is mentioned also in the book of Revelation, a great, a great time of worship of God's uh, triumph over Pharaoh and over the chariots and horsemen of the Egyptians. And how God worked in a mighty way, and it's just a time of, of praising God's glorious grace, a time of worship, a time of celebration. By the end of the chapter, they're complaining bitterly against God. How realistic is that? The Bible is so honest about us, isn't it? The Bible tells the truth about God, but it also tells the truth about our nature. And how many times do we see the same thing perhaps in the lives of the disciples? when they're looking really good one moment and they're looking really terrible the next. Peter being the prime example in Matthew 16, 
when he confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and Jesus says to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. A moment later he's saying to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you're a stumbling block to me. Isn't that the way it is in our lives too? One moment, great things revealed to us by God, and the next moment, we're a stumbling block to the work of God. And so it was here. You know, they're celebrating, they're worshiping. By the end of the chapter, they're complaining bitterly against God. How quickly they forget, and how quickly we forget, too. You know, it's an amazing thing. God had promised these evil tormentors, you will never see them again. The Egyptians with their military power, their chariots, you will never see them again these evil tormentors. They came out from Egypt to destroy you, and you will never see them again. But I'm about to introduce you, says the Lord, to an even greater enemy than the Egyptians, your own sinful hearts. And you're going to learn over the next 40 years just how bad it is. You're going to realize that the Egyptians were nothing compared to the sinfulness and the faithlessness and the rebellion that's stored up in your own heart. And you're going to see it put on display as one trial after another, one challenge after another reveals your true nature. And so the physical enemy has been destroyed, but the real enemy still remains, and that is sin. And they're going to get a, a real excursion. And I, I think about that in terms of our sanctification. Sometimes people wonder, you know, why does God leave us on earth so long after we come to faith in Christ? And I think there are just so many answers to that. It's not just for evangelism, but also that we might know how deep was our own sin that we might see again and again and again the great need we had for a Savior. I feel sometimes like the, the Holy Spirit is taking my, me by the hand for a tour of my own heart. One situation after another, revealing my own nature to me. And I think that's what's going on here in the, uh, in the desert. Now let's keep in mind that Moses was not Israel's ultimate guide. It was not Moses that led them for three days into the desert. Look back for a moment at Exodus chapter 13 and verse 21 and 22. Exodus 13 verse 21 says, By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. And this is reiterated in the book of Numbers when it's clear that they didn't move until the pillar moved. And I mean for the whole 40 years they were in the, in the, in the desert. They were guided by the pillar. They were guided by God. You can think about that hymn, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. It was God that led them, and it's so important to keep that in mind. As you go back to Exodus 15 and verse 22, it does say that Moses led them into the desert. But Moses was just the servant of the Lord. He wasn't leading them anywhere, except that God had led them there. It was truly the Lord, it was truly God who was leading uh, them. And so therefore to murmur against Moses is really to murmur against God and against his leadership. Everything that came to them in the desert, however many days they were without water, all of them carefully measured out by God, the providential ruler over all things. So it's not Moses that they needed to murmur against. They needed to come to God. They needed to cry out to the Lord for their concerns. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, and verse 2, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you 
and to test you in order to know what was in your heart. That's what I've been talking about since I began. He, he led them all the way so that they would be humbled and tested so that their hearts would be revealed. To humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Deuteronomy 8.2. So that's exactly what's going on here. It was not Moses who was Israel's ultimate guide. It was God himself. Now, there are lessons that are being learned here. The first great lesson, I think, is to manifest the evil of human hearts, as we've been saying. To try them and test them to know what was in their hearts. It says in Psalm 7, verse 9, O righteous God, who searches minds and hearts, bring an end to the violence of the wicked and make the righteous secure. Our God is a God who searches our minds and our hearts. He wants to know what's in your heart. Revelation chapter 2, verse 23 says the same thing. It says, Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. And then Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. It's the believer that at the end of the psalm stretches out under God and says, O Lord, search me and know me. I want you to know me. I want you to search me. I want you to try me and test me and show me what's in my heart, if there's any hurtful or sinful or anxious way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And that's what's going on. He's searching their hearts that there would be revealed to them their true nature. As I said, even uh, we can deceive even ourselves when everything's going well. Oh, my prayer life is going so well right now. My scripture life is going so well. I've been doing really well in my quiet times. Everything's going well in my home life, in my parenting. Things going well. Well, that's because everything's going well. What about when trials come? What about when challenges come? What starts to come to the surface? Unbelief, rebellion, sluggishness, murmuring against God, it's all there. Just as it was for the Israelites, so it is for us. So lesson number one, to manifest the evil of the human heart and to show that in our flesh there dwells no good thing. Nothing. That's the first great lesson. The second lesson is to manifest God's amazing grace, his, his all-sufficiency, his patience and his love. These terrible trials really do put God on display. It gives God an opportunity to work. After three days, no water. On the third day, they find water, and it's bitter. Just as it was before the Red Sea, so it is now time for God to act. And if God doesn't act, they will perish. And so these trials really put God on display. And the third great lesson that we see is a weaning from the world's that we begin to distrust the world and all of its comforts and pleasures. We'll talk more about that in a moment. That we would be stripped away from anything in this world. That we don't look anymore to this world for ultimate comfort. Now, all of these things teach us ultimately to rely not on the world and not on our own flesh, but on God who raises the dead. Philippians 3.3, it says, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You know, it's funny, I don't think we realize how much confidence we put in our flesh. We put a great deal, and it takes years and years of sanctification to see how much we do put confidence in the flesh, and how hard it is to be stripped of that confidence. Also in 2 Corinthians 1.9, indeed, says Paul, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death, but all of these trials happen that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. I find that to be very striking, that the Apostle Paul, after all of that walking with Christ, after all of his time of following the Lord, still tended to rely on himself and not on God. And so we come in verse 23 to the disappointing vanity of the world. 
In verse 23 it says, When they came to Mara, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Mara. My guess is the place had no name before the Israelites got there. It was just a, a dusty, rocky, desert place. But they found some water there and had some hopes. The utter emptiness of the world, a place of bitter disappointment. Now, the desert itself is empty of physical sustenance. A.W. Pink said no one but a madman would live in the desert of his own choice. There's nothing there to sustain life. And so they're out there by faith anyway, trusting in God. And so also it is true that the world is empty of, of spiritual sustenance. Just as the desert's empty of physical sustenance, there's nothing here in the world for our souls. Nothing. Everything comes directly by grace in the midst of this desert world. And so God intends to educate the Israelites and strip from them a love for this world. In Ecclesiastes 1.14 it says, I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. It's all emptiness under the sun. All of it. In 1 John 2.15 and following it says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God endures forever. And so we have to have our taste for the world stripped. And therefore we have to be disappointed. We have to be brought to the water and unable to drink it because it's bitter. Now this is a, a very serious test when you stop to think about it. Three days of walking through the desert and finally there's water. God is bringing them to the brink of despair. He's bringing them to disappointment. The word bitterness is very strong. It's the very thing that Naomi called herself. You remember after she lost her husband and her two sons. Don't call me Naomi anymore. That means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitterness. God has made my life very bitter. And so it was also for these Israelites when the water is bitter and so they call the place bitter. Our great problem is that we are far too comfortable in the world and far too attached to its comforts. In James 4, 4 it says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And so we need a strengthening in our faith to see the world properly. To understand that it is every bit as much a desert spiritually as the physical desert was for them. Hebrews 11, 13 through 16 says, All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on the earth. Now, people who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they are longing for a better country, a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. God wants you to have the disposition of a pilgrim moving through a barren land, just like the hymn says. That there's nothing I want here. I'm not lingering here. I'm not putting down roots here. I'm just moving through. Philippians 3:18 and following says, For as I have often told you before, and now say again even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And so therefore a great mark of faith and of maturity is a growing disenchantment with this world and what it holds. You know, and it, and it really, it doesn't come easily. I think it really just comes through bitter disappointments. Through putting trust in something and thinking, this will make me happy, and then you see that it doesn't. It doesn't satisfy, whether a materialistic purchase, a relationship, some situation that's set up, all of it robbed of its ultimate sustenance, ability to uh, bring to your soul things that really only God can. And so he brings them to disappointment to teach them that they are truly aliens and strangers in the world. And so they could not drink the water, it was bitterness, and so also became their attitude toward God. And this is the very thing that trials must never do to us. It's one thing for the water to be bitter, but it's another thing for your spirit to be bitter because of it. And I have met and counseled with people whose trials in their lives have made them bitter people. Bitter. A deep-seated hostility and an enmity. And it's ultimately, as it was the case with the Israelites, it's ultimately directed toward God. They're not satisfied with the providence of God. They're not satisfied with what God is giving them in this wilderness. And A.W. Pink makes, a, I think, a very interesting observation here. And he says this, Many an experienced Christian would bear witness that most of his failings in the wilderness are to be attributed to his starting out with a wrong view of what the wilderness is. Ease and rest are not to be found in it. And the more we look for these, the keener will be our disappointment. The first stage of our journey must proclaim to us, as to Israel, what the true nature of the journey is. It is Mara, bitterness. It's the very first lesson God wants them to learn. They're on the other side of the Red Sea. The, the songs and celebrations done. Now let's get to work. Let's start learning what this is going to be all about. The first stage, therefore, is a bitter lesson. Disappointment. So many troubles in the Christian life come from expecting ease and comfort and pleasure in this world when God has not promised that. To us. As a matter of fact, Jesus promised us the exact opposite. In John 16, 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Now meditate on this. I have told you these things so that in me you will have peace. In the world you'll have trouble. You want peace? Stay in Christ. Keep your mind focused on Christ. Fill your heart with him, just as we said uh, this morning, for me to live is Christ. Be saturated with Christ, and in him you will have peace. You'll be able to sing like Paul and Silas in the middle of your desert experience, in the middle of your trial, in the middle of your hard time. In me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble. But in the end I've conquered it, and you will enjoy the fruit of that victory. So let's learn to train ourselves to see what's going on around us. It's so difficult because we have to look with mature eyes, with the eyes of faith, to not be allured by vanity fair and say, you know, there's nothing here for me. Nothing here except the will of God and his sustenance and his grace. Now in verse 24 we see rebellion and complaint. The people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? The people at this point forgot about the Lord. And I began to study this pattern of grumbling and complaining. The Israelites were world-class grumblers. I mean, they just really were. They, they set the pace for grumbling and complaining. They grumbled here about bitter water. In the next chapter, they're going to grumble about no bread to eat. They grumble about water again and again. Several times, water is the grumbling point. 
They grumbled at one point about having no quail. You remember that? When was the last time you grumbled about not having quail? If only we could have some quail to eat. And God said, you want quail? I'll give you quail. You'll be eating quail until it comes out your nostrils and you loathe it. You will eat so much quail that you'll wish you had never seen quail. But they were world-class grumblers. They grumbled about not having any quail. They grumbled about the promised land itself. It's a land that devours its inhabitants, they said. This was the greatest grumbling because they would not enter by faith into the promised land. They grumbled about it. They grumbled about Moses' and Aaron's leadership. You brought us out here in the desert to die, they said again and again. And they grumbled about having to eat manna year after year after year. Now whose fault was that? God intended the manna for a relatively short amount of time and then they would feast on crops they hadn't planted in the promised land. But instead they rebelled. They were world-class grumblers. And Numbers 14.27 says, the Lord said to Moses, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? Now, many times in Psalms, the psalmist says, How long, O Lord? How long? Here it's the other way around. How long are they going to grumble against me? How long? Now, this is a great sin, the sin of complaining. Now, they may have been world-class grumblers, but I've been known to hold my own in the complaining category. Sad to say. You know, we were created for God's praise. That's why we were created. Israel was created and redeemed, says in Isaiah 43, 21, the people I formed for myself that they may proclaim my praise. That's why he created them as a nation, that they might proclaim God's praise. So also, we were redeemed in Christ for the very same reason, to the praise of his glorious grace, it says in Ephesians. Praise is a great, a significant thing. And therefore, to, to grumble and complain is to thwart God's purpose for us, the very reason we were created and then redeemed to begin with. Our mouths were to be filled with praise and thanksgiving. Saturday morning, Nathaniel and I were having a, a quiet time, and we were looking at the book of Hebrews. And I had just noticed something that morning, and I... And I thought, boy, is this striking. It's in Hebrews 12, and it's talking about how everything physical around us will someday be shaken and removed. It'll all be shaken. It'll all be thrown away. But we are receiving an eternal kingdom that will never pass away. And so, therefore, the author to Hebrews says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so... Or in this way, worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That took thankfulness and raised it up to a very high level in my estimation that morning. I said, oh, I need to be thankful today. I mean, I need to be thankful all day long today. Because I'm receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I need to thank God no matter what happens. I need to thank God. And so Nathaniel and I, we talk through the day ahead of time. I said, now, if this happens, what should you do? Be thankful, Daddy. Well, what about this? What if this happens? I kind of took the, the top greatest hits of the last month and, and grouped them together, all of the negative things that might happen. I said, what about this? I need to be thankful. What about that? Thankful. No matter what happens, let us be thankful. And in this way, we worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. We were created for thanksgiving. Therefore, grumbling and complaining against God is a great sin. No matter if it has been three days and the water's bitter. It's a great sin. And so we need to be thankful. 1 Corinthians 10 says that this whole story was written for our insight, for our instruction. I'm not wrong in spiritualizing 
this because the author, I mean Paul the Apostle in Corinthians does the very same thing. And he says, all of these things were written for our instruction, 1 Corinthians 10. He says, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And listen to this. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So, if you're thinking, if you think you're standing firm, take heed lest you fall. See, the whole thing, the whole Exodus story was written to warn us against certain behavior patterns and attitudes. And one of them is grumbling in the midst of the desert. Just don't do it. Trust the Lord. Now, I can get very specific. Some of you are trusting God right now for employment. And it has seemed like a desert. And maybe you come right to the edge where you think this will do it. This will be the one. And how disappointing when it falls through. How very, very disappointing. But do not grumble against the Lord. Trust in him because at some point he is able to make the bitter water sweet as he did at that particular moment. Moses cried unto the Lord, it says in verse 25, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. Now this is in, interesting, isn't it? A piece of wood was put into the water and all of a sudden the water became miraculously sweet. Now in typical spiritualizing style, A.W. Pink said, this is the cross of Christ. I can't go that far, but I did mention it. Um, the symbolism of how the cross of Christ can sweeten even the bitter waters in the midst of the desert. And so it can. To know that all your sins are forgiven, even if you are unemployed. To know that all your sins are forgiven, even if you haven't been healed yet from the thing you're trusting God for healing for. All your sins are forgiven. You're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, even if that relationship isn't what it should be. To trust the Lord in the midst of all that. The Lord revealed this piece of wood and he used it to heal the water and he used it to heal the people. And as a result, he used it to test them and to bring them into a faithful, obedient walk with him. In verse 26, if you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians. Now, I would call that a veiled warning. Now, I know it's a promise in a positive way, but if you do not obey me, you will face my judgment. You will face my discipline. And so therefore he says, do not behave that way, but rather trust in me, obey my commands, and see what I will do. I will heal you from all diseases and protect you in every way. Now verse 27, finally, is the refreshment of Elam. Now this is a, a phenomenon of the Christian life. They came to Elam where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. Isn't it an amazing thing, the rhythms of the Christian life? It's not all one way and it's not all the other. It's not all desert and it's not all oasis. It's a, it's a very wise mixture and combination of the two. Elam represents the oasis. It represents the palm trees and the lush uh, resting place after the trial. Mara and the desert before it, three days, represents the hard work that God's doing in the soul. And so it is with us. I was speaking actually to the lady who was cutting my hair. She was a Christian lady the other day. I just met her for the first time and she was going through a hard time. And I was thinking about this message. I said, you know something? If we were all desert, what would happen? She said, we'd get discouraged. I said, you're right. But if we're all oasis, we wouldn't grow. We wouldn't learn to stop trusting in the flesh. We'd get a wrong idea about this world and what it is for us. And so it's a very wise rhythm in your life. 
of hard trial and desert and bitter water, and then Elam, where it's just a lush oasis of satisfaction. You get the same thing in the book Pilgrim's Progress, don't you? Really hard trials for Christian, and then you get the interpreter's house or some other place of uh, Manasin's house where he can be refreshed for a little while before he continues in his journey. But don't stay too long at the oasis. We've got to get to the promised land. And the temptation is to recreate too long, to stay in a place of refreshment too long, and to forget that it was only meant to strengthen us on our toilsome way until we get finally to the promised land. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.